Welcome to Media Talk USA for October. I'm Jeff Jarvis. On this month's podcast, no more mourning and mewling and misery about newspapers. This month, we're talking TV. Letterman comes clean. What does that tell us about transparency in the media today and blackmail as a business model? Will NBC's primetime talk experiment sink or swim? More magazines bite the dust. The Federal Trade Commission decides to regulate commercial endorsements by experts, celebrities, and now bloggers. And we take a look at the Washington Post's new Twitter regulations. Should we be surprised that journalists have opinions? Media Talk USA from GuardianAmerica.com and PaidContent.org. Welcome to the October edition of Media Talk USA from The Guardian. Or should I call it Late Night with Jeff Jarvis? We are talking TV today, and joining me in the studio is my very own house band. James Ponowazic has been the Time Magazine TV critic for the last 10 years. Before that, he was a media section editor at Salon.com. His blog, Tuned In, can be seen at Time.com. Welcome, James. Thanks, Jeff. Also here in the studio is a young journalist who gives hope to every blogger and journalism student out there. It is the New York Times TV writer Brian Stelter. Before landing his job at the paper of record, a college-aged Brian wrote the wildly successful TVNewser.com blog that was, quote-unquote, read religiously by network presidents, media executives, producers, and publicists. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Jeff. So, first on the agenda, Letterman comes clean. Media Talk USA. David Letterman was finally enjoying his time as the king of late night, at long last, I'd say. With Leno headed to primetime and Conan still working out the kinks in The Tonight Show set, Dave was thriving. Even late show reruns were beating new episodes of NBC's late night staple in the ratings. But behind the scenes, Dave's life was taking some strange turns. This, uh, this started uh, three weeks ago uh, yesterday. And uh, I got up, uh, I get up early and I come to work early and I go out and I get into my car and in the, the back seat of my car is a, a package I, I don't recognize and have never seen before and, and don't usually receive packages six in the morning in the back of my car. <laughs> the creepy stuff was that I have uh, had sex with women who work for me on this show. Now, my response to that is, Yes, I have. <laughs> I have had sex with women who work on this show. And would it be em embarrassing if it were made public? Perhaps it would. Perhaps it would. <laughs> Especially for the women. I wonder whether Dave sets the new gold standard in public confessions. Will the next Spitzer or Edwards come learning at his feet? I also wonder about the nature of transparency and our reaction to it. Brian, you've been covering this story. Um, how do you think it's going for Letterman? The defense attorney for Robert Halderman, who is the man alleged to have uh, tried to extort David Letterman, called called the talk show host a master manipulator of the media. And and that, that confession, I really think it was a confession that Thursday night, uh, I think proves as if we needed any more proof that he was a, a master broadcaster. He really took the story, presented his side of it, um, really owned the news cycle when it came to this revelation about what is really a sex scandal at The Late Show with David Letterman. And, and was able to um, 
was really take, able to take control of the story from the first hour and, and really up until um, the you know fifth or sixth day of, of the scandal. And he kept going uh, in f- some subsequent nights. Do you think that's smart? Uh, why do you think he's doing that? Uh, you know, he, he is such an intensely private person. Uh, when, when it comes to access to The Late Show and to David Letterman, it's an entirely uh, – he, he sets the standard um, for uh, privacy and, and for, um, for not really um, – not being willing to uh, grant interviews and and be that you know that media personality that that say Jay Leno is or Conan O'Brien is, and because he's so intensely private, I've been surprised that he's been willing to come on uh, and talk about this case for more than one night. Uh, but perhaps he thinks he has to. Perhaps he thinks he has to stay ahead of this story. James, what do you think the impact is both on Letterman's career and on society? Well, I think the caveat with this is, you know, always we don't know what's, you know, trials are unpredictable things. Who knows what's going to come out? What are, what other shoes are going to drop? But I, I think one thing that, that Brian alluded to, Letterman's public persona, um, it may have been Letterman's best in advance inoculation uh, before any of this happened, which is to say, you know, when when scandals like this happen, context matters a lot. Um, and, you know, David Letterman's thing has never been being the guy who's just like you. You're not, he's not, you know, you know, Jay Leno who likes cars just like you car, you like cars and, you know, he clips coupons and eats at Burger King or whatever, you know. David Letterman is not the guy next door to you who you're going to have, a, you know. David Letterman is the guy who if you go onto his property, he's going to call the police <laughs> and get a restraining order against him. You know, so, so I, I think that the fact that he's, he's always had this, you know, cultivated this persona of being, you know, you may love him, but you loved him as a lovable jerk. Um, in a way kind of sets, you know, there's not the same sort of, it's weird. You know, it's, it's undeniably weird. And, you know, I think there was a sense even of his audience being freaked out. Mm. As uh, you know, as and not quite knowing how to react as, as he told the story. Um, but, but he played it very well and sort of owned the, the awkwardness of well, it. Well, someone once said you never want to contradict your essential nature. And Letterman has not contradicted his essential nature the way this that, that Leno would have if this had come out about Leno, for instance. Because Leno, I mean, it, it, you know, if, if you interview Leno, the, the, there are certain quotes about himself that he trots out over and over again. And one of them is, you know, I'm the same guy I always was. I drive the same car. I've been married to the same woman for such an, you know, you would play that quote over and over again if this was, you know, you know, David Letterman has always had kind of an odd personal life. Um, and has been sort of standoffish about it. And I think that that redounds to his benefit a little bit here. Well, what about the notion of transparency? I keep lathering on about my blog about how we're in an age of transparency and publicness. And comparing this to other confessions we've seen lately, as I mentioned earlier, Spitzer and, and Edwards and so on, Dave just came out and said it. There's no passive voice there either. You know, there are no fancy locutions. He, I, I don't know how many times, and this, you know, Gave me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. He kept saying, "Had sex with women." <laughs> you know, it was not. There, there were, you know, there were no relations. relations. There were no. Yeah, there was no passive. <laughs> no voice. definition of it. Uh, you, you, you could yeah. argue that he's learned from all the politicians that he's made fun of for twenty years. Exactly. He's learned to be direct. On the other hand, uh, this is something I've kept saying in the newsroom for the past few days. If he's saying he had multiple relationships, why won't he just explain the number? Why? Why does he leave it out there for everyone to um, wonder and 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 let the gossip magazines and the tabloids chase for days and for weeks. I'm a little surprised he didn't put, he put a lot out there, but he didn't put everything out there. Yeah. And so it creates the opportunity for more and more Well, he also argued, though, didn't he, Brian, that he was trying to protect the people with whom he had sex from this glare. And so if you put the number out there, you have kind of a checklist, don't you? <laughs> That's true. You know, some some yeah. may be able That's to hide true. still. That's true. Um, 
have you seen any polls about the public? There's a lot of speculation about the public's reaction to this, women's reaction to this. And he joked about uh, the, the, the car navigation lady not even talking to him. Um, have we seen any sense of the public's reaction to this yet? I haven't seen any, you know, credible polls. I've seen a lot of online polls. Uh, certainly I've been you know, reading a lot of, uh, you know, blog commentary and, re- and reaction and so on. I mean, I, my sense of it, and this is just sort of taking the temperature, we, we won't have any real ratings that we can judge because obviously, you know, the, the first few nights of this, the, the ratings are going to be huge. And if his viewers go up, that doesn't mean they support him. That yeah. means they wanted to see a, a, you know, a car crash. That's yeah, what yeah, television's yeah, yeah. about in these, in these moments of uh, drama. Right. With anything like this, you have to see where it settles. I yeah. mean, however, I mean, I have gotten the, just sort of taking the temperature of it. The people who have seen most censorious about it seem to be the people who do not like Letterman to begin with. Uh, you know, in particular, the culture warriors, the people who are right. ticked off at him about the, the Sarah Palin, the Sarah Palin incident, stuff, yeah. and, and who for some time have seen David Letterman as the liberal David Letterman, the liberal talk show host, the guy who was too rough on McCain, that was perceived as friendly to Obama. In this way, I think it's almost, you know, we, we talk about the difference between a, 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 a late night talk show host and the politicians that they make fun of. In this sense, he's sort of similar to one in that, you know, I think that you just have a lot of people coming to whatever conclusion they were going to come to about him. Media Talk USA from The Guardian and paid content. Let's shift a little bit to now the talk show scene at night. Um, NBC threw in the towel at 10 o'clock, put in Jay Leno, which I call a certain kind of surrender, but then I'm a Letterman fan more than a Leno fan. Um, They now have four late night talk show hosts on NBC alone, plus the other networks. Are we headed for an overdose of talk like we have an overdose of reality? Or is oddly the Letterman story going to be the kind of resurrection of talk as a form? It's the Jay Leno Show. Featuring Kevin Eubanks and the primetime band. And now your host, Jay Leno. Welcome to the program. I just say, If you, if you came here, if you came here tonight for sex with a talk show host, you've got the wrong studio. All right, so. Ain't that for sure. You know, I, I gave Leno a bad review back when I was a TV critic at uh, TV Guide, and he called me after that. Well, did you did you really not like the show? <laughs> yeah, Jay, I didn't. <laughs> what do you think of? Leno's new show. I'm sure you could run the same review again. <laughs> so, you know, 17 years later. I mean, it, it, it is largely the Tonight Show with, with a few tweaks for, for, for all the talk about it's comedy at 10. I mean, late night shows are comedy shows. Uh, there, there are a, a little bit fewer guest interviews, and they've done a couple different things with guest interviews. But it's basically, you know, and NBC has sort of had to walk a line between not officially saying that we're doing a retread, but also appealing to the people who want to see what they saw before from Jay Leno. And I think that's that's mostly what he's given them. Brian? I, I, in a way, I feel sorry for Jay Leno. If I were him, I would be trying to make news every night on that show. I'd be trying to have a clip that's viral the next morning from that show. I'd be trying to have the day's big interview on that show. And I haven't seen a lot of that. Uh, what's been viral in the past week is his joke uh, about David Letterman. Um, beyond that, I, you know, I'm not sure what 
he's doing that is catching um, the public's attention beyond that five million or six million a night audience that he's probably going to settle at uh, in the coming weeks. You know, one thing that I'd, I'd held out some hope against hope for was there was a lot of talk before the show started about how they were going to be doing more with these comedy correspondents that they have. Um, and that, you know, I, I mean... You know, Jeff, you and I hold the universal television critics opinion of Jay Leno, and he's probably never going to win us over as, you know, a comedian with his, uh, you know, play to the middle style. But, you know, th- there, were, there was this idea that, well, we're going to hire a lot of young comics and try some different things. And maybe it'll be sort of a laboratory for, you know, uh, uh, comedic talent. They haven't really done anything that interesting with it yet. In fact, it's sort of funny that. They kept saying, even though we're going to have these correspondents, well, it's not going to be like The Daily Show. It's not going to be The Daily Show. It won't be like Comedy Central. Well, you know, maybe you want it to be kind of like Comedy Central. Maybe you want people emailing, you know, these these four-minute clips from your correspondents around to their friends and, you know – getting some viewership for that next generation. Right. It, it hasn't passed the Hulu test yet. You know, the challenge of the Jay Leno show is that uh, if you're home at 10 p.m., you've got every option you can, you know, beyond what you can imagine to watch. And so are you going to sit down and watch the Jay Leno show or the hundred other shows that you've got on Hulu or on your TiVo? Um, personally, I'm going to watch what, I, what I've stocked up, you know, that I need to catch up on. But I would still watch the highlights of the Jay Leno show on Hulu or on YouTube if there was a highlight that that somehow you know was able to reach a broader audience, and so far he hasn't passed that test. So as a primetime strategy, I, I was uh, recuperating from surgery for three weeks, so I did something I haven't done in years. I sat and watched the fall shows. And so I watched Community, and I watched Glee, and, and Flash Forward. We're still trying to figure that one out. Uh, I also admit that I got a little bit of nostalgia when I watched uh, the nascent Seinfeld reunion on um, mm-hmm. Curb Your Enthusiasm. But I actually saw that there was some quality, I think, this fall. Was NBC foolish to throw in the towel for a whole hour every night? Well, you know, the thing I will say, playing sort of devil's advocate here, is that for, for all of our gripes about it, right now, just as a business proposition, and that's what the Jay Leno show is. It is a, a business device. Um, it's right now doing more or less pretty much what NBC intended it to do, which is getting, you know, depending on the night, depending on its lead in, 10, 20 percent more than Jay Leno was getting in late night and being very, very cheap doing it. You know, it, uh, NBC has has this idea uh, that um, to, it, they might not necessarily put it this way, but basically they're becoming a large cable network and that TV is moving more toward that that model. And, you know, I think it's possible to say that the show is giving up, you know, is, is sort of a surrender, but maybe it's not necessarily an unwise surrender, um, given that there's there's maybe only so much expensive broadcast television that the business is going to support. The risk is lower. In some ways, it's diminished the way my hometown Baltimore Sun feels diminished. Uh, to bring out <laughs> newspapers momentarily, it, it feels that it feels that, that shrinking is in a way defendable, although it is so sad to see for, for a veteran of TV or for a veteran of newspapers. Um, you know, you point out, though, that we've got, I think, what, the best fall season in, in how many how many years? Five years? Ten yeah. years? So many new shows that are worth watching. So many, so many competitions so much competition for Jay Leno at 10. And good stuff on, on Showtime on and HBO. Yeah. What it works well. So what it, give me a few minutes on your favorite shows or highlights, lowlights from this season. Um, surprisingly, for all this talk about bringing back 
Comedy at 10 with the Jay Leno show, um, this is the first year in a long time that there have been a lot of really good network comedies, which is yeah. shocking. Yes. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know as, as a TV critic at the end of every year, probably like you did, I, I put together top 10 lists of the, you know that show's debut. This is, I think this is the first year, if I were making that list right now, where I would have a lot of comedies on that but show in years it, and yeah. years and years. You know, Modern Family, Glee, yes. Community, uh, Bored to Death on HBO. And, and and the thing that I think is really great about it is that we're seeing sort of the the, the breadth and the the um, expansion of the definition of what a comedy can be. You have shows like Nurse Jackie on Showtime this summer, which was fantastic. And it was this far from being a drama. It was, you know, a very dark comedy. Um, and you you have everything from that to, you know, something like uh, Community on NBC, which is this screwball misfits coming together show about people at a community college. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think that, that that genre is doing surprisingly well for all the, the obituaries. That what are you watching on it. your Hulu and your I'm, I'm watching many of the same shows, and I, I have to be thankful that I'm watching them on every network. Um, that this is a year where I think every network has something they can at least call a hit, whether it's a hit by the traditional definitions or not. NBC has community, which is going to take time, uh, admittedly, just like The Office took time, but I'm hopeful for it. Fox has Glee, ABC has Flash Forward, CBS has NCIS Los Angeles, which by by the way, a, a really good show. I've I found myself watching it. I never thought I'd be the type to watch a crime procedural on CBS, but they've got me hooked. And uh, the CW can even argue that Vampire Diaries for them might be a hit. So I, I'm I'm hardened by the fact that it seems like every network has uh, some uh, some strength and some, and some shows schedule. are also finding their place. Um, uh, what's the nerds show? <laughs> the Big Bang Theory. Thank you, Big Bang Theory. Is, <laughs> is, is on fire. Is on fire. Is hitting its, its stride. It's kind of like TV comes back. It, it, it comes back from the death all the time. And I guess <laughs> not to mention well, We the... have to give these shows time. The Big Bang yeah. Theory is in its third season. A show like The Office took several seasons to, to grow, but it's now NBC's number one show again. Diminished uh, in, in our expectations for NBC, but it is their you know their top show besides football. Um, and and we, look at, we look across the, the schedule and you have to wonder if the model for television is what Fox did with Glee. They only launched three new shows this fall, and uh, one of them, a Brothers, uh, a sitcom on Friday nights, is is a is a flop. But Glee was so um, so intensely promoted; it was on, you know it was it was made a hit by that network, and it helped that it's a truly good show. But because they didn't launch ten or twelve new shows, they had they were able to devote time, the time that Glee needed, which also to takes find the risk audience. out of it too. They're doing fewer <laughs> right. things, putting more resource into it, and yeah. and 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 going. I think with they it. re-aired that show three times. They showed the the pilot three times before the second episode. And, and, and by, the way, and by right. the way, whose strategy is that? That's that's being a cable network. That's a cable you know, network and, strategy. And, and, yeah. and, you know, I talk about broadcast networks being like cable, and the, the initial thing is it sounds like it's a bad thing, but I don't think that's necessarily the case at all. Over the past, you know, decade or so since, say, The Sopranos started, the best shows on TV have come out of cable. And if, you know, what the networks end up doing is they, they focus on making a few shows each season, but it's the right shows, that can be fantastic. Yeah. You know, uh, NBC's pulling out of drama at 10, but... Sh- Networks like FX and AMC are making far better dramas at 10 p.m. anyway, so fine, let them do it. Media Talk USA with Jeff Jarvis. Take the hard work out of listening. Set up your free subscription to the Media Talk USA podcast. All the details can be found at guardian.co.uk slash USA. And now the rest of media. Another iconic glossy looks set to leave the newsstands. Gourmet, the Talmud of the table, is 86 after 68 years in favor of the younger, bigger magazine in Condé Nast covered, Bon Appetit. Modern Bride, Elegant Bride, and The Mummy Mag Cookie are also toast. This was a case of the other Manolo dropping after the dreaded consultancy McKinsey tried to bring reality to Condé's unreal world. 
Full disclosure, I spent about a dozen years dodging bullets at Condé Nast as the corporate online guy. So are magazines in as bad shape as, dare I say it, newspapers? Will after the folding of Condé Nast's portfolio, will we ever see a new launch? Or will they fade into the sunset and newsstands will get thin as the forest they used to kill? I mean, I, I don't know that I, I'm biased. I'm the magazine guy. I don't, I don't know that the, 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 the so so Brian can can rebut me. I don't know that their numbers are isn't low, but you know, obviously there's there's definitely retrenchings, and you know, magazines aren't expanding. They're they're cutting back. They're not they're not launching. Gourmet dropping though. Um, even though I was more Cooks Illustrated guy myself, that's just like Mount Rushmore collapsing. Um, and this this weird idea that they're sort of continuing it as a virtual brand like there won't there won't even really be sort of a website but, it, but I think it that's what you say after the funeral when you say let's all stay in touch yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> Brian I, I couldn't have said it better I, I I suppose I'll keep going to Epicurious for my recipes but I don't I don't see how you can keep a brand like that going even if they're going to spin off the occasional book the Federal Trade Commission just released new guidelines for commercial endorsements and brought bloggers under their net now, I hate spam bloggers and those who would corrupt my online friends, like Paper Post. But I fear these regulations are a monument to unintended consequences, hidden dangers, and dangerous assumptions. Am I just paranoid? I look forward to seeing them try and do enforce these. And uh, I, I say that cynically. I, I wonder how they will enforce these. And I think <laughs> bloggers should be the ones following up and writing about it when it happens to keep the pressure on the FTC about this. Yeah, I mean, the problem is, is that it probably becomes more like FCC crackdowns where the effects are not from any actual prosecutions, but it's it's the chilling effect. I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I think that there there is, you know... There's a noble attempt to avoid uh, corruption here and, and this, this whole idea of, you know, promoting only positive reviews online and on blogs and so on. Uh, to me, my, you know, my, 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 my guideline would be don't treat different media differently. I mean, right, they're not going after you. Yeah. You can take lunch, you can take uh, tapes, and they're not going after you, but they're going to go after the poor little blogger. The irony of this to me is paper post. It took me a while for me to get this. But paper post is not about trying to get people to read blog posts because I read them and who would read this horrible drivel, <laughs> right? Oh, I really like that product and I'm paid to say so. I finally realized, duh, it's human spam. It's mm -hmm. meant not to fool consumers. It's meant to fool Google. Search engines, right. Exactly. Right. And it's a way to get around the notion of automated machines putting links in. Now we got housewives yeah. to do it for us. Well, like if I'm buying, you know, a DVD player or something like that, it's not like, you know, throughout my life I'm, I'm, I'm following my DVD blogs week in and week You know, you do a search. You, you look for – and if you, you happen to hit on that right sponsored opinion – um, then ka-ching. The other great thing for us critic types is that they also now have outlawed uh, networks and studios from rewriting our words and changing the opinion. Lord knows that used to happen to me. Colossal pile of shit becomes colossal, Jeff Jarvis, People Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Finally, cable behemoth Comcast is looking at taking a controlling interest in NBC Universal. You'll recall that this was not Comcast's first attempt to purchase a content creator. Five years ago, they offered $50 billion for Disney in a deal that flopped. Is this a cagey strategy, or will Comcast become, dare I say it, James, the next time Warner AOL? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my, my gut says maybe better them than GE running the company, but it does seem kind of... As, as you suggest, you're hard-pressed to look for examples of that many media companies successfully expanding bigger into more and more fields. Um, and and I, I just I, I wonder if they would be doing better if everybody here would be doing better focusing on their, 
you know, there 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 are areas of strength. Well, I agree with you. I'm not, I'm not a fan of of a defense contractor owning a broadcast network and news division. I I've always <laughs> been a bit squeamish about that ever since I think I learned about it in high school. Uh, I, I'm so I, I'm a little interested in this deal from that perspective. I suppose Jeffrey Amell wouldn't be getting the calls anymore from MSNBC bashers, so he might enjoy that uh, not having to deal with that anymore either. Uh, but it does feel uh, so backwards, and and so many of the analysts really dissed this deal when the news news of it came out. The stocks on both sides were hammered. Yeah. The only stock to benefit was Time Warner because it looked like Time Warner might not um, be interested, you know, might not to pursue NBC. And, <laughs> we and fortunately might not succeed in getting NBC. Right. And inv- investors supported that. Um, <laughs> you know, this deal might be a ways off. It might never happen, but they certainly seem uh, they certainly seem ambitious and, and trying to do it. Media Talk USA. Finally, a few weeks back, Raju Narasetti, a managing editor at The Washington Post, sent the following two tweets on his feed. We can incur all sorts of federal deficits for wars and whatnot, but we have to promise not to increase it by $1 for health care reform? Sad. And, I quote again, Senator Byrd, 91, in hospital after he falls from standing up too quickly. How about term limits or retirement age or common sense to prevail? These opinionated remarks quickly brought about new rules at the Washington Post for social networking activity, all done in the name of journalistic objectivity. James, in your blog, when you're paid to give your opinion, you call this a bogus idea. Why? Well, for, for one thing, I think that it, it, it kind of promulgates an, an inaccurate idea of what objectivity is. Um, I, I think that too many things that that uh, journalistic institutions do to promote the idea that they're fair um, create the impression that objectivity, fairness, whatever you want to call it, means not having opinions. That's ridiculous. I mean, unless you've been lobotomized, <laughs> unless you're an idiot, you're going to have opinions about important things that you spend your day covering. The, 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 the notion is that despite having those opinions, uh, you do your work fairly nonetheless. To me, uh, greater embracing of, of transparency and two-way communication between uh, institutions and their readers through things like Twitter, ultimately, which ultimately is coming anyway, um, that's, that's only going to promote that because people increasingly see that journalists are human beings, uh, that, that whatever format they work in, the, these, these are people who are capable of you know, knowing things, analyzing, having opinions, and being fair nonetheless. And not revealing those opinions is a form of distrusting the audience. I don't trust you to know this about me in a sense. And it sort of fetishizes it. It's like, well, if I just keep it like a shameful secret, then you'll trust me. How does that cultivate so, trust? Brian, you're a champion tweeter. Uh, do you feel, uh, you know, the devil's on your shoulder as you do it every day at the New York Times? <laughs> I, I feel that we have, we, journalists, I, I was going to say we have to learn how to be responsible to tweeters. I think we already have, though. I think we've learned how to do it the right way. I remember when I went to Obama's inauguration, I put out a tweet that said, and by the way, I went to both of Bush's. I'm going to be celebrating American democracy. I'm allowed to do that as a person, but I'm also allowed to do it for the other party, too. It doesn't have to be partisan. It doesn't have to be political. But I thought I had to explain that in advance on Twitter. And look, as long as I send that one tweet doing that, I think it's okay for me to be posting from the mall the next day. Uh, I think Twitter has created this, this new venue for honesty, perhaps the world's best venue for honesty. I'm able to be honest about where I am and what I'm doing and what I'm seeing and what I'm watching. And let's take the editor of Glamour, uh, excuse me, the editor of Gorm- May, who was tweeting all weekend, and then she lost her job. 
And she wasn't answering phone calls from reporters the day she lost her job, but she did tweet. And so the end of our New York Times story the next day on the front page ended with her quote from Twitter. There, there's no better venue for that kind of honesty. And I think in the end, honesty is going to win out, even if some news organizations are deathly afraid of how, it. How does Twitter help your job as a reporter? <laughs> Twitter helps me get the news out as fast as I can. It, it creates a brand both for the New York Times and for what I cover for my beat. It allows me to figure out what do people care about. There are stories that I will only write because I can see them percolating on Twitter. And it'll also allow me to fix, uh, frankly, fix typos, fix mistakes, and see stories coming and see mistakes coming. I, even in a case on Sunday night when I was at the movie theater and there was a typo in my story and a, and a reader alerted it to me on Twitter. I, it sounds silly and it sounds subtle, but those subtle um, improvements in our work are what Twitter allows us to have. I find that fascinating. If I put that in three buckets, you started with distribution. Here you are at the New York Times, this great behemoth distribution, yet Twitter becomes a new important way. Second, you said news gathering and then and, and knowing what people want, news stories. And then the third uh, is improving the journalism, correcting it, right? In, in always in subtle ways. I don't think it improves our journalism in in, in um, dramatic ways that are even easy to explain. They do it in subtle ways. It's not as if we're going to Twitter and finding all our sources. I don't think we want to get to that point. We want to have it happen in in more um, uh, harder to explain, but uh, but better ways. We want it to we want it to be fixing that typo. We want it to be pointing out a question that we should have asked but didn't ask. We want it to be showing us an angle we didn't see before. And it's I think the Twitter. Twitter's always going to, I think that, that that's always going to win out despite these rules from news organizations. I, I agree. The problem I had with the Washington Post's uh, in, in enforcement of this was twofold. One, the process they went through, which was from the mountaintop, here comes Moses with stone tablets, here are the rules, rather than learning that you discuss these things and learn from them, number one. Number two, what disturbed me most, which you mentioned in your piece as well, James, is that what they, they said, don't discuss our process. Don't open up the sausage factory. And that's, as we just heard from Brian, perhaps the most valuable part of this is that by opening up online, by not acting as if we're perfect, by becoming kind of a beta journalism, we necessarily become collaborative with the public rather than shut off and distant from the public. And my fear here is what this really indicates at the Washington Post is the print folks won. And the online sensibility just ain't there. Yeah, and there's just too much focus on what not to do, what to avoid doing. And inevitably, if if you have that coming down as a dictate from your employer, as opposed to just use common sense, you know, and and let's talk about this, but but we want you to be doing this, um, it's, it's... all the more reason not to engage in this really, really valuable tool. At the end of this podcast, we'll all have a tweeting session and we'll uh, verify and uh, support each other's tweets. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, I, I thank you very you. much. Uh, it was wonderful not to talk about newspaper business models and the lack thereof and to talk about media where something's actually happening. So, well, that wraps it up for another month. Media Talk USA is engineered by Chad Bernhard and produced by Glenn Ostin Anderson. We record in the studios of the City University of New York Graduate School of Journalism. Don't forget to add your comments to our blog at guardian.co.uk slash mediatalkusa. Make sure you subscribe from there too so you don't miss next month's edition, which will be uploaded around the first week of November. I'm Jeff Jarvis. Thanks for listening. Media Talk USA from guardianamerica.com and paidcontent.org.